once I started identifying as non-binary, like it was just kind of like everything got gay all of a sudden. When you're non-binary, I feel like you get to start accessing just the expansiveness that definitely comes into everything that I do. It's like the imagination is so childlike and so expansive that like it's just the opposite of black and white thinking. It's like everything can be anything, you know? You're listening to Seamside, the podcast where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and today we sit down with Marley Grace. You may have noticed that I don't have any commercials on this podcast, and that's all thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Well, I guess that was kind of a low commercial, wasn't it? But other than that, listen, Quilty Nook are some of the friendliest, most inquisitive, and feral group of quilters I know. Their membership support helps make projects like this podcast possible, and for that, I am truly, truly thankful. If you're looking for community and inspiration, I'd encourage you to check out The Nook and come be our guest for a few days. You can find out more about The Nook in the link in the show notes below. I hope to see you there. Now, y'all know your reviews are kind of like love letters, right? Take a listen to this one from AKJ Bay, who said, I just listened to your podcast for the first time and was motivated to start my very first quilt with oh so many small puffy squares. Thank you for your conversations, which feel like I'm tagging along with an old friend. AK, you got a friend in me. Thank you for taking a moment to write those few words. And hey, if anybody listening to this right now wants to write me a love letter of their very own, I would be a willing recipient. Thank you so much for your reviews. Marley Grace has a way of capturing human experience into words that, for me at least, makes them feel lived, even if they're not my own lived experience. Writer, dancer, quilter, Marley does it all. And they now live in rural Michigan, where they're busy making an old house a home. And we connect one afternoon while Marley was at a friend's house in Detroit. And together, we talk about feeling like an outsider in the quilt world, the importance of stewarding family traditions. And we wrap up this conversation with an expansive and life-affirming glimpse into gender queerness. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Marley Grace. Hey, Marley, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. I lo- I feel like this is like, is it cheesy to be like, it's a dream come true, but I'm so excited. I'm such a, there is nothing better than when you're a fan of someone and they want to have you on their podcast. I'm like, it's such a self-esteem boost and win for me. I'm such a fan of you and this podcast. Well, that's, that's very kind. I mean, you and I, we connected, I mean, pre-pandemic. And so ever since then, I'm like, oh, how can I reconnect with Marley? And so this provided the it. perfect excuse. So thank you for falling into my quilty trap. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy to be in it. Yeah. So Marley, I got a lot of things I want to ask you about, but let's start with where are you right now? Um, I'm currently in Detroit, Michigan, which is a place I don't live full time, but is a place I spend a lot of time in. I just... Uh, Recently purchased a home in Cedar, Michigan, on the Leelanau Peninsula in the north. And um, I, le- I, I want to paint the picture that I'm, like, in my sweatsuit. Like, I'm post, I'm, like, post-workout. I'm, like, a little sweaty. I'm, j- I'm like, I f- which he- is great to do, actually, right before 
a talking thing because I'm like really in my physical body right now, which is not always the easiest as a person. So I feel very in my body. I'm in Detroit. I'm in my sweatsuit. I'm in the podcast room. That's the picture. So you're wearing your sweatpants. I'm wearing my soft pants. Let's get started. I've been doing taxes all day too. Let's just paint that picture for people. And so anything that we can talk about that's not taxes, not taxes and like creative and artsy would be a gift to me. So that's a gift to me as someone who has talked about my tax journey on many other podcasts. I have no to publicly talk about my taxes yet again. So let's not talk about taxes. I love that. People can hear that somewhere else. (laughs) Yes, they can. Marley, what does your day look like? All of my days look different. And they're sort of their own little container. Like right now, Mondays are my newsletter days. I write a newsletter that's literally called Monday Monday. So, And on Mondays, I write my newsletter. Um, so Mondays are big writing days. Tuesdays and Thursdays, my work is usually around my co-working days, um, flexible office. I work out three days a week at 1 p.m. with Stella, my hot, awesome, cool personal trainer. Um, I usually teach on the weekend. So usually on Saturdays or Sundays, I do. I either am teaching a quote, something human or one of my many classes on creative practice. And then a lot of my like in between times are like, In the morning, I always wake up and I feed June, my dog, and I make my coffee and I start the fire in my wood stove. And and then we walk. I do a lot of walking with June um, in the woods. And the other thing that's been filling my time is just house projects. Like I painted my kitchen. I painted the tile behind my wood stove. I've I just like rearranged the house. So. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of house projects, and that's sort of what most of my days are all sort of like a some sort of arrangement of those things. And then usually some sort of sewing or knitting or writing and dancing. Those are sort of my like fine art practices that I do and don't make money in depending on the season and my own desires. But those are the other things that sort of sprinkle in the day. Is this the first time that you've had your own home and lived on your own? I have lived by myself before when in for a couple of years, I lived in Point Ray Station, which is a little town on the ocean north of San Francisco. And I had I rented my own little cabin in a eucalyptus grove. And that was very, very special. But this is my the first time I've owned a home and definitely the biggest space I've ever lived in uh, by myself. Yeah, I've been enjoying following your painting projects and your different reno projects that you have. There's something nice. There's something to be said about making a space your own that you just can't do when you're renting, you know? Yeah. So if you had to divide your week into a pie, how big is the quilty sewy slice of that pie? It's really small right now. Yeah, I was having like a short imposter syndrome moment before we hopped on. I, you know, I fall into like a an sort of interesting 
place probably in the quilt world or the quilt. I don't really feel like a part of a quilt community in a lot of ways. You know, I, I identify as an artist and as a dancer and, you know, my improvisation practice as a dancer sort of is what got me into quilting a decade ago. It'll be a decade of quilting in June. And I, it goes in waves for me. Some I'm, te I'm not teaching right now. And so a lot of times when I'm not teaching, I'm sewing a little bit less. And yeah, I just have seasons where I'll like, you know, bust out a bunch of quilts and be sewing a lot. And then seasons where I just don't as much. And yeah. I'm not I'm not sewing as much. I'm I'm we're I'm working on knitting a blanket right now, which is feeling really good. I, I really love, you know, a big part of my teaching quilting and my fascination with quilts is really about blankets. I would say almost more. I think quilting as a practice, I'm interested and in blankets. I'm interested and in. quilts go in between those two things. Um, I have two grandmothers who were both blanket makers one a quilter one a crocheter so yep i love blankets what has it been about blankets as objects that you feel so connected to so drawn to yeah you know eliza fernand is who taught me how to quilt in 2013 she's there an amazing artist and quilter and you know, my, my dad's mom died when he was in his early 20s, and so I never met her, and he didn't really talk about her a lot. Like, I didn't really know that much about her, and when I learned to quill and showed him the first quilt I ever made, it was like something lit up inside of him, and he had all of these quilts that she had made, and like a lot of different clothing and items that she had knit, and it just opened up a way for him to like talk about her and tell stories about her and was just, I mean, to touch and hold a blanket that this person had made that I never got to meet. You know, I, ha I have in my house a quilt that she made, a quilt that her mom made, and a quilt that her mom's mom made. So my grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother. And, um, they're just really special objects. And I use them. Uh, I feel like that's something my students get so afraid of is using their quilts, using quilts they've inherited or quilts they've made. And it's like my quilts, the one that's like over a hundred something, something years old, like sits on the back of a chair and is ratty. And that's where it's like, I want it. I want them to be used. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why the blanket is so important to me and I really I was when I learned to quilt I was sort of at a weird point in my dance practice where I was really questioning I don't feel this really anymore but I was sort of like dance is useless you can't use a dance and I was like you can use a blanket like I was able to sort of channel I really liked that it was a functional object I like to think about I don't know if I say like I've started thinking about quilts as consumable objects as opposed to like heirlooms or something like that. Whoa, I love that. There was a time when when my partner's mamaw was still alive down in East Tennessee. She made a quilt for each one of her grandkids when they graduated. Cool. And just recently, a few months ago, Papa reached out to one of us and said, I hope y'all aren't using mamaw's quilts. 
with the the idea that we would wear them out, that they were special objects. Or like, Papa, I, I think Mama would want us using those quilts. She'd want us to wear them out. Yeah. And I think the same about my quilts. You think the same about your quilts, it sounds like. I mean, they are crafted with an intention. And so to deny the object that's been made with a certain intention of that faculty just seems... Uh, it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. So you said a minute ago that you felt like you were kind of an outlier in the quilty community. And that's something that's interesting to me because I, I feel like so many people, so I, I host this online community for quilters called the Quilty Nook. Maybe you've heard of it. Yes. And I would say the top two places that people are coming from are you and Heidi Parks. They've wow. taken a quilt as something human wow. or they've taken one of Heidi's classes. And wow. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool. It's really I cool. Send them. I send them to you. I'm like, go to that. Please. <laughs> y'all come. Y'all come. And I feel like something that I hear over and over is that people who hop on the nook feel like they're the only quilter they know. Or mm -hmm. they they don't come from a lineage of quilters. They don't come from that family background of quilters. So they don't feel like they know, they don't feel like they have permission or they don't feel like they know how to get plugged in, right? So I, I wonder if what you said about feeling like an outlier in this community is something that people resonate with. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think most people who take, first of all, that makes me so happy that people leave a quilt as something human and go to the quilting of. I, I, I quite specifically tell them to do that, so I'm glad that they're listening to me. But I feel like most people who, maybe not most, I mean, I, I guess I don't know our percentages, but like a lot of queer people, a lot of non-binary people take a quilt of something human, take my quilt class. And I think we, you know, in a lot of the history, it's sort of, we see it as like a straight woman's world. And so I think especially for like non-binary students my my you know myself included who don't identify as a woman or male students or trans students you know they're really coming to the space i think to find each other and to be like how do we get to do this work and call and call it our own or call it something different and i think you know a quilt is something human is a weirdo art class really i happen to show you how to make blankets i happen to show, talk about the history of quilting but it's like it's really a class where we're like undoing perfectionism in our practices. So a lot of people are have other modalities that they mostly work in, like they're ceramicists. I mean, it's so one of the I really love when people take class that don't have a creative practice. That's a huge part. People come who are lawyers, who are nurses, who are therapists, who are like, I need to do something. And um it's a lot of people who want to get more intimate with, I think, their own ancestral practices um, of textiles. And, and that's something that we do in class and talk a lot about with each other. And yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I guess I, I maybe project, I don't know how other people in like quilt world see me. I may be making that up that I'm like a weird outlier. Maybe I'm not, but I've certainly never been invited to any sort of like quilt convention or quilt 
anything. I've never been on a panel. I've never been at a thing. I, I'm not invited to retreats. Like I invented a weirdo online art class about quilts and people fucking love taking it and love making quilts. And I, outside of you, maybe, and, and Heidi, but like, I don't, and then my students, I don't really have a lot of other like quilt peers in the way that like, as a writer, I very much have a writing community and I am very close with many other writers in my field, but I don't have that with quotes. Am I a reject, Zach? Do I not know that I'm like quote reject? Do you guys talk about me? talking about you behind you. Yeah, just kidding. That's white narcissism. I don't need to say that. So how many times a year are you offering this class? You know, I technically announced that I retired it this year. I taught it in January and I was like, this is going to be my last time. I kind of already miss it. I think I just need to invent something a little different. Um, I mean, I've probably taught it 15 times at this point. I mean, I've taught hundreds of people now how to quilt. And it's the same class every single time. But I... I prioritize teaching it live to only 40 people because I like the conversations we get to have. Um, and so it generally sells out. And um, I I don't know what's next for my teaching and my quilt practice, but it just felt like I didn't want to teach the kind of like 101 four-week class anymore. But I... I'm trying to like listen to God and see what's next, but I don't totally have the answer. Yeah. So what would you say is currently your most meaningful project? I'm working on a new book that I can sort of lightly talk about. I mean, it's not as much like it's a secret as much as it's really a, I mean, I think really what I'm working on is writing about my attention and my creative practice and where my creative attention goes and how it gets sidetracked and how I get distracted and how I really commit to my practice. And I think that feels really meaningful. And yeah, I've sort of been chipping away at it for like two years and, and have sort of been in a few... I have some other people sort of helping me and it's like, I don't, I don't think it's that people are steering me the wrong way, but I think I've just sort of come to a point where like, I know what the book needs to be. And even if I'm misunderstood, I need to find a way to like put it in the world the way I think it needs to be in the world. Cause it's your name on the front cover. It is my name on the front cover. It's true. <laughs> That's a beautiful. So how do you, okay. so asking for a friend myself, yes. um, how do you decide? which projects are going to be the recipient of your attention? Because I get the sense that you got a lot of pots on the stove. There's a lot of beautiful things that you could do with your time and your energy. So what's your calculus for saying this, but not that? Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think that it's always changing and it has to do with a lot of different things. It's like, you know, for instance, it's why I really love having a weekly container of the newsletter i imagine there's things in the quilty nook that are like consistent or like your podcast practice or like you know containers that are just like every monday i write so it's sort of like my week is framed in that i'm 
asking myself, what will I want to write about on Monday? What will I want to share about on Monday? And so that is really helpful. My practice of morning pages, of journaling, is often what gives me this answer. It's what get, when I write about something so many times, I'm like, probably should teach an online class about that. You know, I also really pay attention to like what my students want and are asking for and are asking for more of. I mean, that's where like my little sort of like two hour classes come or I'll just start having enough peers who are like, how the fuck do I write a book? And I'll tell them all so many times in a one off way. And I'm like, OK, I should probably teach a class about writing a book. Um, and so it's a lot of times just like when a theme or a topic or a subject just appears so many times that I, and I am excited about it. That's sort of how. And I'm absolutely asking myself what's going to make money. <laughs> you know, my I, my newsletter makes money. My classes make money. Um, you know, I often talk about how quilting the practice of quilting itself i do not have a commerce exchange for i do not sell physical quilts which feels important to me to sort of protect that practice as like unhooked from capitalism i'm absolutely happy to make money teaching people how to quilt but quilting i like that it's separate but that means sometimes i don't engage in the practice as much it's like I like that my newsletter makes money. It's my job. It keeps me in, keeps me committed. There's accountability there. So those are sort of some of the ways, you know, I'm asking, does it excite me? Is it going to make money? Uh, sometimes things excite me a lot and don't make me a lot of money. And that's okay because they're exciting enough. So, yeah, those are some of the and questions. Sometimes things aren't exciting, but they make you a lot of money, I imagine. So you're like, okay, just this once. And, you know, that's what a quilt is something human had sort of started to shift into. And it was precious enough to me and my students are precious enough to me that I was like, I don't want this to feel like a job I'm clocking into. And it got close to that. And I so I quit before it did that. I was just like, I'm, I refuse for this sacred container to just become a job that doesn't feel like I'm excited to be there with people. So, yeah. Because life is short. Energy is finite. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Sarah Trail a few months ago, which is Sarah Trail, for those who don't know, is the head of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. And we got into a conversation about how do we get more people quilting? Mm. What would your answer to that be? You know, something that I... And this sort of brings me back to like what's next for my teaching around quilting. I think with my writing and my creative practice, there's so little gatekeeping around it. It's like my newsletter is free every single Monday. Like I pretty much say yes to anybody who even wants the paid subscription for free. It's like I feel like a lot of my talking and teaching about creative practice is really accessible. My quilt class costs $375. It's an investment. It's not cheap to come to quilt class. However, I will say I have never said no to anyone who has wanted to take quilt class, whether they need an extended payment plan, they want to trade me, they want to Venmo me $20. So um, 
That being said, I think I have this question of like, how can I make teaching about quilts even more accessible? Whether it's like, maybe I want to make a PDF of all my favorite quilting books that's free. Maybe I want to do a, a totally sliding scale quilt class weekend or something on Zoom or in real life. I think, you know, to me, it's about like, yes, I see the value in that in my teaching costing money. I stand by the value of my class. I think it completely changes people's lives far beyond learning to make a blanket. And I, of course, want more people to know how to quilt. So, yeah, it's something I definitely am thinking about and don't fully have the answer to. What did Sarah say? I could listen to the episode, but. Sarah's came at it from a, an economic perspective as well, saying that there is there can be a high bar for people to jump over to invest in a sewing machine, to invest in fabric, to invest in classes. Totally. And so part of the solution is coming up with those community funds or have community spaces where those things are available. I love that. Yeah, with, I'm with that. And I'm going to say that's similar to what you're saying. That That's one of the beautiful things about having so many different offerings is it allows us, us being you and me and folks that do similar things, a certain capacity for generosity, right? Never. Similar to you. I've never turned anybody away from the nook. Someone yep. comes to me and says, I need community right now, but I just can't. Whatever. No yep. problem. Yep. We want you with us. Hop on. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you want to join the nook, yep. reach out to me. Yep. Let me know. Totally. And it feels good to be able to do that. I don't know if I could do the same if I had some brick and mortar or something. So what kinds of transformations do you see coming from your students out of a quilt to something human? I see. Oh, I could cry. I'm like, oh, man, I just I mean, you know, in sort of like we do we do intro. Everybody introduces themselves and then everybody does a show and tell. I mean, if they want to. And then people participate in different ways throughout. But I watch people introduce themselves and say, I've never used a sewing machine. I'm pretty sure I'll have no idea how to do this, but I don't know why the fuck, but I signed up for this. And then at show and tell, they're showing us like the most beautiful quilt in the whole world, talking about how much their self-esteem has improved, how they found out about their grandparents who quilted, how they collaborated with their partner. Like a really common story will be like somebody's sewing machine broke and then they ran into their neighbor in the hallway of the apartment building. And it's like an 80 year old woman who's like, well, I can fix your sewing machine. And it's like just the stories every time are just so amazing. But I think the biggest thing is like I watch them like themselves i watch them find this thing where they leave and they're like i like myself so much more than when i got here and like believe in myself even the ones who come and are like i never sewed two pieces of fabric together and i still had so much fun <laughs> you know it's like we make a lot of permission for those who do not do the activity of quilting in quilt class so yeah anti-perfectionism anti-perfectionism Exactly. Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of folks in the nook specifically that have come through a quilt to something human. <laughs> and they've gone on like you need to see what they're working on. I don't know if you keep in touch with everybody. They just they're continuing to this day to make pieces that are very personal and very uh, from a from a deeply creative place. And they continue to ask themselves questions about 
why they do why they do certain things or why we other quilters do certain things like do i have to do it that way the answer is usually no right yeah and it, it's it's sweet i think it means something that i can think about the people in the nook and i don't know everybody who came to your class but the, i do know several yeah and, and i can tell i can see the, the through lines there well i think a really beautiful Something that I teach and talk to them about is like Eliza's practice, Social Justice Sewing Academy, something you've talked about, which is like using oftentimes the materials of people who have passed and are on earth anymore and using that in their quilts. And that's commonly what many students do in class is they're, they often come to class with a death pretty close by. Like it's, it's pretty common a handful of students in each group have a parent, a grandparent, a, a partner, a, a child, like death, death definitely is in the room with us. And, and many of them are, are working with materials of people they've loved to are no longer with us. And that's, that's a really touching part for me um, to watch them work in that way. It's not something I've done and feel grateful to witness that. Well, there's so much, I mean, power is not the word for it. Maybe it's energy. Mm. But when you're taking the clothes of someone that's close to you that's passed on and you're cutting them up, that first cut, that first removal of the buttons or the separating the lapels or the cuffs or whatnot, that's tough. That's a little death in and of itself. Yeah. Which helps us process. Mm -hmm. How would you say that being a teacher and facilitating experiences like this has changed your creative practice as someone who makes quilts. Well, I really want to shout out to Christy Johnson, who is just an amazing artist, a longtime friend of mine. Christy co-taught every single session of A Quilt Something Human with me and just brought so much cool, you know, she like does a slides show called Tips and Tricks. And it's just a lot, a lot of like snipping and ripping and like making, um, you know, lots of triangles at once and just sort of these, you know, kind of like faster ways to be working and improvising within some more structured shapes. And I just got better at quilting just because Christy was there, you know, just just tried a lot of new things. And and it was really important to me and Christy to you know, bring in sort of the our, our individual histories of quilting. And she always teaches everyone about Harriet Powers. And I always teach people about old Swedish quilts. And, you know, we just kind of bring our different chosen ancestors and blood ancestors into the fold. And I think, yeah, I just feel really grateful to Christy for everything she brought to that class and similarly i loved t christy teaches a class about self-drafting your clothes and i would love to see the students go to christy's class and then kind of use what they learned about patchwork and quilts and making clothes so and just my students are i mean it's crazy what they do and what they make i mean they i mean it sounds so cliche like my students make me better but it's like they just make me better at quilting. They make me excited about quilting when I start to be like, eh, you know, so that's a big, big part of it. 
so easy to fall into a groove, which can be a beautiful thing to be in a groove, but then grooves quickly become ruts, right? And so I feel like our students and the people we surround ourselves with, when we are in danger of slipping into a rut, can help yank us out. What would you like to see more of in the quilt world as someone, as a self-identified potential outlier? Would you like to see more of? I mean, my first thought was like, I want to see quilts as much as I love the blankets. I want to see quilts showcased and on walls and on the backs of couches. And like, I just I don't know. I want to see more quilts. And I think I do want to see more people in touch with their own quilt history. Like, I think that brings me back to like wanting yeah i i want to hear more about people's quilt histories like i love i mean i'm a huge dr jess bailey fan of public library quilts and um just such a generous offering of like no matter who you are or where you're from you can go to her instagram and find someone in your ancestry's quilt practice probably um, just in that little space. It's like, I do want to see, yeah. More, and it feels like, in a, you know, I can only name my own experience, but as a white teacher, it does feel really important to me to know about Swedish and German quilts and about the history of the place I'm in. And, you know, that's something that's really important in, in my class is... And then and then sharing that with each other and learning about each other's is really cool. And yeah, I don't think the world can have too many quilts. No, no. I I'm, think my bedroom can probably have too many quilts stacked yeah, up in the corner. So yeah. <laughs> my house might have a cap at some point, but yeah. yeah. You know, I had a chat with Jess Bailey several months back. And if folks haven't heard that, that was episode five. And there's a story that I'll always remember her sharing, which is about the last indigenous queen of Hawaii. Yes. And how when she was under house imprisonment, taking her garment, cutting it up and putting it into a quilt. To get it, the full story, check out episode five, but it's beautiful. That was the And just as full of those kinds of stories. That was the first episode of yours I listened to. Good choice. Thank you. Thinking about personal quilt history, what do you have on your bed right now? You know, on my bed, I actually have a Doosan Doosan quilt coverlet, which is very much not a handmade object. It is a small um, bedding brand object, but I do really love it. I will say on the guest bed quilt, guest bed is a quilt I made last winter, which I have two quilts now that are all made with the fabric that I had at my wedding, which I was married to someone. We are no longer married to each other, but we are very much still family. And his, I'm really close with his mom still, who also lives in Northern Michigan. And we were hanging out last year and we hang out a lot, but we were hanging out last year. And she was like, you know, I pre-cut all these squares that were, um, like uh, out of the tablecloths and things from our wedding that was like thrifted pink and white fabric and she had cut them all in because she was going to make a quilt and she was like I just never got to it do you want to and I had sort of wanted to practice like the chain linking just sort of like putting two squares like over and over just through 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 
and it was so fun and I made the quilt top so fast and it was so nice because I don't use rulers or rotary cutters so it was so nice they're all cut already and uh so yeah it's a really cool like white cream and pink checkered quilt that I made um with the that fabric maybe we can get a picture of that so folks oh yeah I've got pictures of it yeah when you think of so you said you have a quilt from your mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother? My grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother. My dad, my dad's side, yeah. So if those three quilts were in a conversation together, <laughs> what would they what would they be saying? What are their personalities? Oh my God. What do they have in common? How are they different? They're blue. They're all blue. Which is interesting because I've never really made a blue quilt. So maybe that's my next. And these women are all German. And I, I will say I don't know as much about the German history side of quilts as I do about the Swedish side. But I, um, yeah, they're all just kind of these different shades of blue. And they really, I mean, they truly feel like they were made to keep people warm because they were. So I think, yeah, but I don't really know. There's like a still a pretty lost history. Like, I don't know if. They taught each other if that was passed down, if they were learning from aunts or other people in the family. I don't really know anything about kind of that part of it, but yeah. How do their how do their stitches compare one to the other? The well, this they're all not like the stitching is not whereas like my quilts, I feel like the stitching is a little more aesthetically sort of a part of what's happening i generally use like three strands of embroidery floss so the stitching is like a little more like abstract interesting weirdo art looking and theirs is all pretty hidden but one difference is like the piecing gets bigger and bigger so like the one that's really old is like very intricate i probably pieced by hand like really 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 intricate patchwork Whereas, like, the one my grandmother made is, like, much simpler. So that's what definitely changes as they get. And then mine are, like, even simpler. So, yeah. So then what comes to mind first when you start thinking about what Marley's quilt in this series might add to the conversation? I know. It's it's funny. I feel like I've never thought about, like, adding to those quilts as like a collection of four or something which this is really cool to start thinking about I'm glad you're asking but I I have a bunch of like blues and fabric sort of set aside that clearly looks like it sort of all wants to be made into something so yeah I mean mine is just you know I just don't work with patterns these are all patterns and like the the blocks are all the same I mean, they're different. Some of them are different color, different fabrics, but the pattern is the same in each block. So I think mine is really about like no cohesive blocks maybe is what's next. Or maybe I will make one with cohesive blocks. Maybe that'll be a crazy little experiment. Or maybe it just has one here, one there, or a twist on one of those traditional blocks. It'll have a twist no matter what, so. That's what I, I can't help. You're not using rulers. I can't help but no, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, I think about you and quote you often when I say no rules, no rulers. I I, I think, get it right. I you got it right. I think most people do. I'm happy to have 
I think I coined it. I've never heard anybody else say it. So um, I love no rules, no rulers. No gods, no masters, no rules, no rulers, you know. So you've been quilting for 10 years? 10 years? It'll be 10 this year. Yeah. So when you think about your first quilt or two. Yeah. And you stack them side by side with the last couple quilts you've made. What's the trajectory you see there? Definitely just more color. I mean, that's like really my whole life is like when I had a shop and learned to quilt, I was wearing just beige constantly. I was just, you know, I was wearing a lot of like beige linen dresses, which first of all, I don't wear dresses anymore. But like I just like everything was like just creams and beiges and it was sort of like people kind of make fun of me like mar only like shades of beige or something and my quilts really were that kind of muted and now like one of my favorite quilts i made last year is like pink it's like pink stripes and it's like i really work with and even my kitchen like painting my kitchen yellow it's like i really want to be around colors just so much more and what do you attribute that shift to? I mean, while I was just saying that, it sounds kind of dark, but I was like, my mental health just got, just went and just tanked. And I was like, I'm going to need dopamine somewhere. So I'm going to get it from whatever, you know, what I'm dressing. I mean, it's true. It's like, you, I think, I don't know much about this world, but you hear about like dopamine dressing where it's like you dress in a way that like gives you a dopamine hit or like, I mean, when I open my bedroom window and see a bright yellow kitchen, I'm immediately like, yes, like it really works. When I see the pink quilt on the back of my couch, like it really brings me joy. So I think like, and especially with COVID, I think that's when I really, really embraced color was like, there's just the world got so sad that I was just like, I need joy and I need to, to have it sparked by the materials that I'm, you know, working with. So Marley, anybody that has followed you over the course of last year knows that you've had a pretty significant transition from someone who identifies as she, her, to someone who identifies as they, them. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really curious going into this conversation, what I found myself wondering about is how that identity and that stepping into that identity has affected your creative practice. Yeah, I love I love this question and I have never been asked it before. I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is I feel really like I definitely call myself a boy a lot and I'm like a guy. Like with my other non-binary and trans friends, I'm like, we're guys, we're boys together. Like there's no like if anything, we he him each other. Like I really I think that part of me has just felt so free. And I think even like owning a house in the woods, like when I'm like chopping wood by myself, I'm like, I'm doing my boy tasks. And it's like, obviously women can also <laughs> live alone and chop wood. But it's like, for me, it's sort of like, um, I think accessing that part of myself feels important. And it's so tied to the kid part of me. Um, if if I was, quote, a boy when I was born, my parents were going to name me Cody, which I have tattooed on me. And it's a nickname a lot of my friends call me as Cody. And it's just I just find myself so much more playful. Like, it's just so fun. I think sometimes 
cis people or people who don't quite get the playfulness of gender can be kind of like if I like he myself, they're like, wait, are you using he him? I'm like, no, I just do that sometimes. You know, it's like sometimes I or my friend Bobby calls themselves a he him girly, which I really like. It's like it's just fun. It's just fun to be like, I'm whatever I want to be. Like, I like to say I'm a good girl, but I'm a bad boy. It's like that's kind of like the sexy part of it is like maybe I want to be a good girl, but I'm a bad boy. Um, You know, kind of being from Michigan, the Pistons are like the bad boys of the NBA. It's like I really just love sort of like bad boy culture. And um, and yeah, I think it just brings more playfulness into like my life and my home and my friendships and my my sexuality I really watched my sexuality expand like I think for many years I was like I am a woman who loves women like really like my lesbian ancestors would be proud of me as a dyke today like I was really just like that was so ingrained and I do I do really still connect to that as someone who was socialized as a woman and but it once I started identifying as non-binary I kind of like started liking boys again, like all boys. Like I was just kind of like, boys are hot. Like I'm a boy and boys are hot. And that's gay too. Like it was just kind of like everything got gay all of a sudden. Whereas before I would see things as like straight or not. It's like gender. When you're non-binary, I feel like you get to start accessing just the expansiveness that definitely comes into everything that I do it's like the imagination is so childlike and so expansive that like it's just the opposite of black and white thinking it's like everything can be anything you know so that's thank you for asking that because I really do love thinking about it and talking about it so it's it's funny Marley because my mind went when you were talking about expansiveness to a conversation I was having with uh, somebody who was trying to evangelize me on the streets about two or three weeks ago. And this poor kid, he walked up to me and he was like, he he led with whatever question he had, but we got on the topic of how do I know if I'm on the right track? His answer, of course, is going to be, well, you follow what's in the Bible because it lays it out pretty clearly for you. A, B, C, checklist, you're done. Yeah. But my answer was, upon reflection, because he didn't know who he's talking to. No. Like, I'm going to give him a real answer. Right. And my answer was, well, I think that I can see my life opening up more and more every day. The decisions I'm making create more space in my life, connect me to more people, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that feels like love to me. That feels like if I thought about the alternative for a moment, if I were making decisions that made my life feel smaller, that would be kind of sad to me. Yeah. And so I like thinking about ways we can make our time on this planet bigger. And if it means playing around with words and identities and our understanding of binaries, if it means playing around more color and painting our kitchens yellow, mm. then let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. I do think gendered pronouns, you know, I feel like I sit kind of on the cusp mm-hmm. of I straddle two generations, right? Because you're you're yeah. Uh, you're 34. I'm 34. I'm 42. 42. Yeah. And so, like, I still remember getting my first computer. <laughs> I still remember 
getting a cell phone when I graduated college, yes, right? Yes. So I'm, right. I'm, that's where I'm at. That's my generation. And so I feel like it, it can be tough for a lot of people to wrap their mind around if we even need gendered language at all. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think about is, what well, I'll tell you what I think about. My grandmother, one of them, I won't say who, because I talk about both of them quite a bit. I don't want to give any one of them a bad rap, so I'll yeah. give them both a bad rap. No. <laughs> <laughs> my grandma, uh, whenever she would like go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or whatnot, if she encountered a person of color, she would come home and she would tell the story about, quote, that black girl behind the counter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Grandma, I got to the point as I was like, Grandma, why does it matter? Like, why are we throwing in that adjective all of a sudden, right? If it has no bearing on the t- storytelling itself. Why are we throwing in that adjective? And I begin to think that gender a lot of times can be similar. Why are we bringing gender in this conversation when we're really just talking about one very specific person and not a category of person or a way of being a person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I see that. Yeah, generationally, my parents as well, the way that they talk about race, the way they talk about gender, the way they sort of use these identifiers as white cis people of a certain generation and i'm extremely extremely lucky to have parents you know around my queerness and my gender are just so loving and accepting but my queerness was definitely like much easier i mean that was like as a child they knew like i came out very young and it was like it wasn't confused you know it just was not it was a non-issue my gender has been um, more challenging for them a little bit. You know, there's really there's a there's a preciousness to having a little girl, you know, and to having a daughter. And it was really it was intense when I told them I didn't want them to use daughter anymore and I wanted them to use kid. And there was a grief in that for them. And we had to navigate it a little bit of being like. I don't, you kind of can't bring that to me. Like you can go talk to your friends about it, but like, I don't, I don't want to hold that part of it for you. And, you know, they just don't, they, they people like, it's just, it's so new to them, but I feel like what I try to tell them and anybody in my life is always like, it's not about getting it perfect. It's about like, trying and correcting yourself when you're wrong and being open to like hearing like I'm wrong about this thing and not getting defensive and just like I try to be when I have any bias come into my teaching or my conversations or whatever it is so um yeah and it I mean there's yes I'm with you on like why do we need pronouns at all or gender in some ways and I know a lot of people, both cis and trans, who really prefer to be in that binary. It's like, you know, someone who she, her is really important to them. And whether they were assigned she, her at birth or transitioned and are a woman now or or have always been, you know, I don't want to sometimes I can stumble on that language as well. But it's like, I feel like I get it. If some people it's like it's important to them to have the pronouns they have. One thing I want to say, if anyone out there is like, am I a they them? The thing that helped me so much. Well, first, what I did was, you know, I had changed my pronouns to she slash they. Well, everybody kept sheing me, my students and everybody else. And I remember and I was like, 
it started sucking more and more. And I remember like when I would get called ladies, when I'd walk into like a restaurant or someone would she me, it would start to be so painful. And I remember telling my friend Jade, who has kind of like a similar gender and style as me, or I should say I have a similar style as them. I feel like I really take on their style. But they were like, Mar, people who like their pronouns being she, her, don't hurt when people use them. Like I was kind of like, oh, oh, those aren't my pronouns anymore. It was sort of like that was what showed me that I was non-binary was like when people would she me or her me, I like wouldn't know who they were talking about. I was like, who could they possibly be speaking about? Um, and it's I will sorry, I'm go now I'm really going off about gender. I really had to unlearn that just because I looked like what the world thinks of as a girl does not mean I look like a girl. Like I look like a non-binary person. Like non-binary does not equal androgynous. It's like just because someone quote looks androgynous doesn't mean their pronouns are they them and just because someone looks quote looks like it's like i don't look like the gender i'm assigned at birth like this i look like a boy when i look in the mirror i'm like that's a boy with a ponytail you know it's like so i think there's just so much in there that can be can feel really unseen by the world like i as much as i say that i also know that if i keep looking like this i will be said Hello, ladies, every time I go into a restaurant till I die, probably. And that's unfortunate. And if you work at a restaurant, please tell your staff to say hi, folks. It really helps. And I notice I really notice when people are like, y'all have a good night or how are you two doing? God, I wish people would stop saying ladies. That's my that's what I want to see in the quilt world. I'm <laughs> just kidding. I don't see that in the quilt world, but that's what I want to see in every world. It's like stop saying hi, ladies. Even cis ladies don't want to hear that. Nobody wants you to say hi, ladies. Maybe that's not true. Maybe some people do. But anyways, okay, that was a long gender tangent. Sorry, I'm done. No, let's ride that way for just another minute. Um, do you feel similar about the, the word guys? No, I love the word guys. I love the word guys. It's See, that's the thing. It's like a lot and a lot of women, I feel like, don't want to be called guys. I, both as a non-binary person and someone socialized female, like, never had a problem with guys, personally. Like, I love dude. I love guys. But also, I'm not a woman. When I was growing up, it, it took me years to realize that this is what was happening. But I grew up on the same acreage in the middle of the woods out in the country with my brothers and my parents and my grandparents and aunts, uncles, and cousins, right? It was, it was a big foster family compound, yeah. minus the compound walls, right? But we were all right. living together. And it was just the way we spoke to talk about me and my brothers as Zach and the boys, right? Like Zach and the boys are coming over or Zach and the boys were just here. And it was so common that I was like in my 20s before I even like began dissecting what that even meant. Whoa. Can I ask really about your gender right now and your pronouns sure. if you want to share with your listeners? Happy to share. Yeah. So at this point in my life, I often put he, they as my preferred pronoun set. He, because I, I feel like a he most of the time okay. in most ways. Okay. I check more boxes in the he column sure. than other columns. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I think gendered language is increasingly, the weaknesses of gendered language mm -hmm. are becoming increasingly apparent to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that in many ways, 
gendered language is like taking a shortcut or making certain assumptions about a person when we could just talk to that person as an individual. Yeah. And so I put they after he as a, more as a common, as an act of solidarity with my genderqueer friends. Yeah. And as a way of saying, as a linguist, I think we have some work to do. Cool. I love that. Marley, what do you say we wrap up? Cool. With one piece of advice that you would, maybe you find yourself giving advice to your students in your quote classes or in your co-working sessions, or maybe you just want to give advice that feels right in this moment to folks listen to the end of this conversation. Yeah, the thing that's really feels present, especially after just talking about teaching and my students is like, please keep making art and try not to think too hard about if other people are going to like it or not, because you know what? They're not like, don't try to make art so that people like it. Like people hate the shit that I do a lot of the time. Like they don't like my books. They think my dancing is stupid and they tell me and that's okay. And I, and I, and thank God I keep making art and I keep putting art in the world. I have to, it's, I'm an artist. I was born to bring art and work into the world. And so I think I just, I see so many of my students or my readers just be in so much pain because they're so afraid that people aren't going to like what they do. And I wish they would just accept that like people aren't going to like what you do. That's not why we do it. We do it because we have to do it. Sort of like me talking about putting this book into the world that like, I think I've been too hooked on. What does my agent think? What do my publishers think? What will my friends think? What will my readers think? It's like, that has actually blocked me way more than it used to. And it's like, what do I think? Like, what do I need to put into the world? And usually what I need to put into the world is what the people needed to receive from me. So I think trusting, trust that what you put into the world will be received by those who need it. And those who don't, we don't need to worry about them. It's none of our business. So that's what I have to say. And to just layer one more thought on top of that or alongside of it. Please. China, who is a former student of yours and a current member of the NUC, we were talking about community and creative community and how even in a safe place, like one of your classes or the NUC, you can still feel like kind of nervous about reaching out to folks or getting together with folks. Yeah. There can be anxiety around that. And then China said, China just got to a point where she realized, wait, what's there to be nervous about? Sewing people are my people. And so China was able to come up with this kind of rubric for herself that gave her permission to form the relationships and the friendships that she wanted while also not worrying about the ones that she wasn't going to naturally vibe with anyway. So when people are your people. Marley, thank you so much for being oh. so generous with your time and your thoughts. Zach, thank you so much for having me. This was so nice. I just love being on people's podcasts because it's so generous to me. It like gets me to think so much about my own practice and and my values and just what I'm excited about. So thank you for having me. You know what I want to see one of the next times we talk? Quilt number four. I know. In the matrilineal tradition. I know. I agree. Quilt number four. I'm, I'm fully with you. I'm writing it down. 
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember Zach is spelled Z-A-K. And why? I don't know. You have to ask my mama. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sow something good, and I hope to see you around the nook.